Okay, if you have Bibles with you, please open up to Luke chapter 6. So I've been preaching a series of messages on love. This is actually my, my ninth message in, in this series. I like, I like running on a theme. I like having a, a track to follow. It's, I, when I preach a series like this, for me it kind of feels like I'm mining for gold and I'll just keep following that vein until, until it runs out. The Word of God has so much to say about the Lord's love. It's just amazing. The love of God is amazing. It's absolutely amazing. It's incredible. It's beyond that description. I love the song that you did today, John, indescribable. The love of God is so magnificent. It's so awesome. It's so wide in its reach that it's indescribable. It's an amazing love that he has for us. It's much more powerful. His love for us is much more powerful than I think any of us realize, and it's vastly more available than we take advantage of. More than we've ever imagined. His love is so very different uh, from human love. And so I want to take another look at his love. So far we've looked at some amazing verses of scripture on the love of God. Two by Jesus, four by the Apostle Paul, one by the Apostle John, and, and one uh, the words of, of the Father from heaven. We've looked at Mark 12, verse 30 and 31. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind. All your soul, all your strength. Oh, man, I love that. The second's like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. We looked at powerful verse in John 13, 34, and 35. A new command I give you. Love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. Not optional. He didn't say we can if we wanted to. <laughs> so you must love one another. And here's the litmus test. By this, everyone will know you're my disciples. If you love one another. Jesus could have said anything in that moment. He, would, he could have said, everyone will know you are my disciples if you heal the sick and raise the dead. Now he did that stuff. That's not what he used as a, as a defining element of what it means to be a disciple. He didn't say, everyone will know you are my disciples if you could prophesy and if you could interpret dreams accurately. I love both that stuff. But that's not the qualifier. The qualifier is this. Everyone will know you are my disciples by the way you love one another. And he gave us the standard that we should love one another as he's loved us. <sighs> Amazing. His ways are not our ways. He does not think the way we think. He's an amazing God. We think of position and power. We think in, the, in terms of, of politics and, and how we can put ourselves in just the right spot to have the most possible advantage. He's not about that at all. We think in means of, of power. He thinks in means of relationship and love. We have an amazing God. Ephesians 3 we looked at where he speaks about the, the dimensions of God's love. I pray that you, being rooted and established in what? In love. Being rooted and established in love. Not being rooted and established in the gifts of the Spirit. Not being rooted and established in knowledge. Not being rooted and established in doctrine or theology. But you, being rooted and established in love may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is what? The love of Christ. He didn't say the power of Christ. He said the love of Christ. Romans 8, 35 and 39. Boy, we need to know this. Paul writes, he says, I'm convinced that neither death nor life 
neither angels nor demons, neither the present or the future, nor any power, neither height nor depth, or anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God. That's in Christ Jesus our Lord. I don't know about you, but sometimes I feel like 10 pounds of sin in a 5-pound bag. I feel pretty separated from His love. That's how I feel. That's what's going on inside of me. This promises me that His love is inseparable. That there's no power on earth, above earth, or beneath earth. There's no power inside of me to separate myself from His love. Not because of my faithfulness or commitment to Him, but because of His faithful commitment to me. His love is absolutely inseparable. Those are powerful words. We need to know that. We don't need to know that for our good days. We need to remember that for our bad days. I have bad days. Anybody else have bad days? I guess some pretty bad days. I need to know this, especially on the bad day. And 1 Corinthians 13, I tell you, for a guy who likes to operate in the gifts of the Holy Spirit, who considers one of my primary giftings to be things like prophetic ministry, I need to remember what Paul wrote to the Corinthians in chapter Three, the first three verses, he says, If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not love, I am nothing. Who? All right, so I want to operate in the gifts of the Spirit. I want to prophesy accurately. I want to be able to interpret dreams. I want to have dreams and visions. But more than that, I need to be able to love. Because God's word, God's word makes it crystal clear that if I could do all that stuff but fail to love, I'm nothing. I tell you what, church folk, church folk, we need to know this. How many of you guys have been in church for 20 years or longer? whole bunch of us, right? How many times have you seen people sacrifice love for an opinion? How many times have you seen people sacrifice love relationship because they believe differently than you do? We do it all the time. We, it's more important to love. The scripture makes it crystal clear. It's more important to love than to hold on to some opinion of rightness. So I've said this before. If the price of being right is my love relationship with another person, if that's the cost, the price is too high. I'd rather be wrong and loving than be right and not loving. How about you? We need to embrace that as a church. We hold on to our rightness, and then we use it as a stick to beat our brothers and sisters. Guys, there's a better way. We looked at 1 Corinthians 13, 4-8, where Paul gives this amazing definition of God's love for us. Love is patient and kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. Oh. Love is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. Oh, my goodness. It does not. Love is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices in the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love, God's love, it never, ever fails. Then I, then I took you on a journey where we examine the phrase, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. I think this was two or three weeks ago. I told you, during the week, God just kind of dropped that phrase in my head, the fear of the Lord. And I'm thinking, I need to understand this better. Because how is the fear of the Lord the beginning of wisdom? And so I, I encourage you to go check that out. I unpacked it thoroughly. 
But this was, this was the, the hinge on which the message rested. 1 John 4.18 says, There's no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear, because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. So I, my, my conclusion was this, that when Scripture has interpreted the fear of the Lord to the beginning of wisdom, I believe they've radically misinterpreted the, the meaning of that word fear. Go, go listen to that message. See what, what God says to you. Uh, last week we looked at uh, Luke 3, 21 and 22, where, where the Father speaks. His voice comes from heaven and says, You are my son, whom I love. With you I'm well pleased. We talked about the, the problem of performance-based Christianity in our culture today. And I, and I told you what makes those words so profound is that Jesus hadn't done anything yet. When the Father said, this is my Son with whom I'm well pleased, <coughs> whom I love. When he said that, Jesus hadn't healed any sick people yet. He hadn't raised the dead yet. He hadn't multiplied food yet. He hadn't cast in any demons. He hadn't done anything. And the Father says, this is my Son whom I love. With him I'm well pleased. The pleasure was not on the basis of Jesus' performance, but on the basis of his relationship with the Father. That's a game changer. That'll set you free. That's the good news of the gospel. Your father loves you. Right where you're at. So, I've been having fun. Can you tell I got a little energy for this? I am impassioned with the message of the father's love. I love this stuff. So I want to I go look again today from a different perspective. I want to look at Jesus' words in Luke 6, 27 to 36. So if you have Bibles with you uh, this morning, uh, open them up or you can follow along on the screen. And this is Jesus speaking in Luke 6. He says, But to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. If someone slaps you on one cheek, turn to them the other also. If someone, gives, if someone takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt from them. Give to everyone who asks you. And if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. If you love those who love you, what credit is it to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those whom you are expecting repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners expecting to be repaid in full. But love your enemies. Do good to them and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great and you will be children of the Most High because he is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. So Lord, I thank you for your word today, for the truth that's in your word, for the power, the authority that's in your word. I ask you yet again, Father God, let your word have its full impact on it, on each of us. And let the result be this. Make us to be more like Jesus. Amen? Okay, so a little bit of context to Luke chapter 6. Uh, in Luke chapter 6, verses 17 to 49, it's kind of like Luke's condensed version of the Sermon on the Mount, which we find in, in uh, three chapters of Matthew, Matthew chapter 5, 6, and, and 7. It covers many of the same topics. Not everything that you see in Matthew, but a lot of the same topics. It covers the Beatitudes. It covers loving your enemies. Uh, it covers the whole point of not judging others, the whole 
speck in you know, your brother's eye, the log in your eye thing. And it speaks about the wise and foolish builders, both in Matthew and in Luke's account. But Luke's is much more condensed. And so here in Luke 6, the verses I just read to you, Jesus is challenging us to love radically. He's challenging us to love radically for human beings, much more radically than even, honestly, than even the best of among us are, are able to do on any kind of consistent basis. I mean, after all, this is one heck of a list that Jesus offers here in Luke chapter 6. He begins with this, love your enemies. Now, enemies here is speaking about, you know, hateful people and hostile people, people who are hateful to, toward you, people who are hostile to you, toward you. That's how scripture defines the word enemy here. I got to be honest with you. Sometimes I struggle loving the people that I actually like. I mean, so for the enemies, this is like, are you kidding me? Those who are hateful and hostile toward me? Jesus, seriously? Do you have any enemies? I've had some enemies, at least people that treat me like they're enemies of mine. I don't want to love them. That's not my default position. When I have people like that in my life, my default position is avoid them. I can have as little contact with them as possible, and at least I won't be mean to them. But Jesus didn't say that. He didn't say tolerate your enemies. He didn't say accommodate your enemies, right? He didn't even say avoid your enemies. He said love your enemies. Jesus, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? Loving them is not the first thought that comes to mind for me. And to qualify the statement, Jesus continues. He's just in this incredible statement. He expounds. He says, do good to those who hate you. So even if I could come up with some kind of twisted definition of what enemy means, he just, just keeps you know, tightening the noose around my neck as it were. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. Now I think, Jesus, do you live in the real world? Good, bless, and pray. Those aren't high on my list for these kind of people. And so to make sure you know, that we clearly understand his message, Jesus offers the following illustration. If someone slaps you on one cheek, <laughs> turn to them the other also. I don't know, that whole turning the other cheek thing, I don't know about Prince Edward Island, but in the neighborhood I grew up in, back in Brooklyn, somebody slaps you on one cheek, you don't turn to give them the other, you punch them in the face as hard as you can. You hit them harder. You hit them until they hit the ground. You don't give them another chance to hit you. Turn the other cheek. You know what we called those guys in Brooklyn? We called them chumps. That's what we called them. But Jesus continues the illustration. If someone takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt from them. His ways are not my ways. Give to everyone who asks you. You know how many street handlers there are in, in Brooklyn, in New York City? Give to everyone who asks you. And if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Yep, we call those guys chumps. I'm wondering, Jesus, did you ever run a business? How are you going to keep the doors open if you operate this way? Jesus is very strange. He's really strange. We have a weird God. Well, verse 31, I have a box for verse 31. Do to others as you would have them do to you. Ah, the golden rule. I like the golden rule. I get that one. You know, but honestly, the golden rule, I kind of put that in the category of proactive, right? I want to, I do good things to them first and the, uh, with the expectation that they're going to do good things back to me. This whole other stuff he's talking about before this, this isn't proactive stuff, this is reactive stuff. This is how, this is how he's expecting me to respond after somebody's done bad to me. So the golden rule I had a box for, just be nice first. I can be nice. 
I've been a pastor for 30 years. You learn how to be nice, right? I'll be nice and expect the people to be nice back. So I had a box for the golden rule. You know, I can love as a first step. It's loving after I've been hurt. That's hard. It's loving after I've been taken advantage of. That's difficult for me. This is not so easy, Jesus. Then almost as if he's inside of my head and knows my thinking, he goes on with verses 32 to 34, and he says, if you love those who love you, that's the whole proactive thing, right? What credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that? Even sinners lend to sinners expecting to be repaid in full. I'm like, ouch, <laughs> you got me. <laughs> That's exactly my thinking. That's the standard operating procedure of, the, of human interaction. This is the way that the world operates, right? Not the way I'm thinking, not the way that Jesus is describing it. And then Jesus repeats himself in the first half of verse 35. He says, but love your enemies and do good to them and lend to them without expecting anything back. Oh, man, I'll tell you what. You know it's important when Jesus repeats himself. Anytime he's repeating himself, he really wants us to pay attention to what he has to say. So, you know... It would be really easy for me to use these verses uh, just to beat myself up. Oh, Tom, you're not good enough. You're, you're just not a good enough person. You're not a good enough Christian. You, you don't love well enough. You, you need to up your game. You need to raise the standard. And, and if I wanted to, as a pastor, I could take these verses. I could beat you up. After I beat myself up with them, I could say, well, I don't want to suffer alone. I'll just beat you guys up with the verses and tell you, you're not a good enough Christian. And, you know, you're not a holy enough person, you know. We just keep raising the standard higher and higher and higher. Jump, monkey, jump, jump, monkey, jump, you know. <laughs> but wouldn't that just take us back to the performance-based Christianity I talked about last week? It would take us right back to that. It would take us back to list of rules or regulations of do's of don'ts. Do more, give more, work harder, love better, jump, monkey, jump. Maybe there's more to the story here. And I think there is. I think there's more here than Jesus just beating us up, telling us that we don't perform well enough. And I think we find that in the second half of verse 35 and verse 36. Now, we've already looked at the first half of verse 35. But love your enemies, do good to them and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. But let's look at that second half of verse 35 and verse 36. Jesus says, Then your reward will be great, and you will be children of the Most High God, because he is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Verse 36. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. So could it be that instead of a new list of religious commandments, could it be? that Jesus is using this list to describe to us how the Father loves us. He's exhorting us to be children who emulate their Father, who act and do what they see their Father doing, right? Don't little kids do that? Uh, we were talking just the other day about our son. He's 29. He's a grown man now. But we remember his second birthday. And so... Um, his sister was two years older than him, and he was two, so she was four at this point. And so 
He had all these presents, and all the grandparents and aunts and uncles were there, and we're having a two-year-old birthday party, and so it came time to, to open his gifts. And so Nadine went out and bought a, a present from his sister, his four-year-old sister, to give to him. And it was a little toy plastic guitar. See, I played guitar. I've been playing guitar for a long time now, and, and Tommy would like, he loved it when Dad would play guitar. So Nadine, being the thoughtful mom that she is, says, we'll get, we'll get Tommy a little plastic guitar. So she gives him that first. Well, that was the big mistake. He loved this guitar. He was so excited about this guitar that when, you know, the big wheel that my brother gave him was opened up, he was like, I got a guitar. You know, and when, you know, when the, the robotic thing over here was open, he didn't even notice. Nothing else in his world existed except him holding that little plastic guitar and strumming his hand up and down as much as he could. Why did he do that? Because at two years old, he wanted to be like Dad. He wanted to do what he saw his father doing. That's what kids do. I think that's what Jesus is talking about here, that we would be children of our Heavenly Father. I love that verse. Verse 30, 35 and 36, Then your reward will be great, and you will be what? Children of the Most High, because He is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. That whole list of things that don't necessarily easily make sense into my brain. It's not my default way of operating. It is the way our Father operates. He's kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. He's merciful, right? Children mimic their parents. Now, from that context, verse 36, and that second half of verse 35, consider some of these other verses from Scripture. Romans 5 Verse 8, Paul tells us that God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't wait till we got our act together. He didn't wait till we had it all figured out. Verse 10 adds this. He says, while we were God's enemies. Oh, love your enemy thing. While we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. This is how he treated us. The exhortation of Jesus is that we would love the way the Father loves 1 John 4, 9 clearly tells us that we love because he first loved us. That we were sinners and God's enemies, and yet he loved us first. He initiated reconciliation. He initiates relationship. And yet to make it even clearer, I mentioned this verse earlier, John 13, 34, and 35, Jesus says this to his followers, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. He loved us while we were sinners. He loved us while we were yet his enemy. He loved us when we were treating him poorly. He loved us. And he loved us. And he loved us. And he loved us. We're to love as he's loved. We're to love as our Heavenly Father loves us. Now Luke 6 takes on a whole different meaning for me. The second half of verse 35 and 36 tells us that our Heavenly Father is merciful, that He is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked, and that we show ourselves to be His children when we love in the way that He's demonstrated and been the example of love for us. We take out our, our, our little plastic guitars and we strum them just like our daddy did. So we can therefore say of God the Father that God loves his enemies. 
that God is good to those who hate him, that God blesses those who curse him, that he prays for those who mistreat him, that if someone slaps him on one cheek, he turns to them and offers the other cheek. If someone takes from him, he does not withhold from them. He gives to everyone who asks. And if anyone takes what belongs to him, he doesn't demand it back. He truly does to others as he would have them do to him. He loves his enemies. He does good to them. He gives to them without expecting anything back. Why would he be this way? Because he's kind to the ungrateful and to the wicked. His ways are not our ways. I think Jesus is painting a picture for us of the Father, saying this is how God loves. And if you want to be like him, do, do to others as he's done to you. So what's our Monday morning takeaway? I think our Monday morning takeaway is verse 36. Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. God the Father has been merciful to you. The fact that you're sitting here this morning is evidence of the fact that on some way, some place, on your spiritual journey, the mercy of God was extended to you. And you find yourself here today. Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. My friends, God loves you. At your worst, God loved you, he sought you, he pursued you, he captured you, he captured your heart, and he rescued you. He loves you crazy. He loves you madly and passionately. He loves, he loves with a ridiculous standard. He loves with a non-earthly standard. He's loved us in a very different way than the world loves. And he has set a standard by pouring his supernatural love into our hearts. He didn't raise the bar high and say, jump, monkey, jump. He did just the opposite. He poured his love into our hearts. We love because he first loved us. First he loved us. He pours his love into us. And then the overflow of that love, we just let it splash on the other people around us. That's the way this thing's supposed to work. So maybe you're like me. Maybe from time to time you're, you've been wounded. Your heart's been wounded. So much so that it kind of feels like this divine love kind of leaks out. You, know? you take hits. You take a torpedo to your hull. <laughs> feels like the ship is going down. If that's you today, boy, I truly understand. I know what it's like to be in that place. So my encouragement is this. Go bask in his presence. Just bask in the presence of his love for you once more. If he loved you when you were his enemy, how much more accessible is his love to you for you now that you're his son and daughter? You can go to him. Maybe you feel like that 10 pounds of sin in a 5-pound bag I described earlier. Go to him. His, his, your sin didn't turn him off from the beginning. It doesn't turn him off now. He doesn't hide from sin. He doesn't turn his face from sin. He never has. It wasn't God who hid in the garden. It was Adam and Eve who were hiding in the garden. We hide from him when we feel like sin, like 10 pounds of sin in a 5-pound bag. He doesn't hide from us. Jesus did just the opposite. That's what we celebrate at Christmas, the incarnation. He came down from heaven. He came to us. He pursued us. Never has he asked us to go up to him. He comes to us. 
That's how crazy his love is. So go to him. Let his love fill you again. Let it soothe you. Let his love heal you. Let it fill you. Let his love fill you to overflowing. Truly let it be pressed down, shaken together, and running over. And that running over part, that you, that's the part that you go and you love other people. Just let it splash on them. Just so overwhelmed by his great and extravagant love for you, then go love your enemies. Go, go love them then. Love them with the overflow of the Father's great love for you. Do good to them with the, with the part that overflows from him pouring out his heart, his grace, his mercy, his love into you. Let it splash all over the difficult people in your life. My encouragement to you is this. Do not draw from an empty well. That's just performance-based Christianity. That's just working harder. That's the jump monkey jump part. I don't think he ever meant it to be that way. It's not about trying harder and harder. It's about drinking from a well that never runs dry. That's the well of his love. Do that. So you might be saying, okay, kind of makes sense. I'm gonna, this was working for me, but how? How do I draw from that well? Well, like I said, bask in his love. Do that in any way that works for you. My encouragement is this. Talk to him like you would talk to, to, to the best friend that you have in the world with that kind of heart. Talk to him like you would talk to the person in your life that is the safest person you know. Just talk to him. That's what he wants. Pour out your heart to him in tears if it helps. Lose yourself in worship. I got to tell you, worship is like my default. It never fails me. I take out my guitar put in my earbuds, put on some of my favorite worship music. And like nothing else, it seems to have the power to wiggle past all my defenses and find that deepest place in my heart to be touched. Talk to him. Spend time in worship. Enjoy his presence. Bask in his presence like you would on a beautiful PEI beach in July. And let his presence warm your soul. Let it melt your heart. Let's pray. Oh, God. Oh, God. You know us, oh, God. This can be a difficult time of year. It's not always easy for us, Lord, getting together with extended family. Buttons get pushed, and it's friction, and there's always some relative who says or does something stupid. Oh, Lord. Really hard. It's hard to love them sometimes. Lord, have mercy on us. We get stirred. We get hurt. It's hard to love. Our tanks are drained. Christmas season is just so crazy. Lord, would you have mercy on us today? Would you be gracious and kind to us? Would you pour out your love on us in fresh and new ways? Lord, there's some of us today, our tanks have been leaking. We're about totally drained out. Would, would you, in your great love for us, would you love us so that we could love others? Would you pour out your love into us? Fill us up, O oh God. Let, let the flow come in faster and greater than it could ever possibly leak out. Fill us up fresh and new with your love. Pour it in. Open the faucet wide. Let it flow. And then, Lord, I pray that from the overflow of your love, that that would be our resource to love other people the way you've loved us. That the overflow of your love in our life would splash on all those other people, especially the hard ones, especially the difficult ones. Let that be so, God. I pray that you would make of us a people who love because you first loved us. 
I pray that you would make of us a people who love supernaturally because you first loved us. In Jesus' name, amen? So sometimes I wake up on Sunday mornings and, and God speaks to me. It's pretty common that he, he gives me a little bit something else to share. And so I just have a little bit of prophetic insight I want to share with you this morning. I think it has to do with the new year coming. Just to encourage you guys. Ecclesiastes 3 uh, famously say, says that there's a time and a season to everything under heaven, right? And, and truly that there, there is. You know, the mocking of time wasn't man's idea, it was God's idea, right? You go back to Genesis chapter 1, and he did a few things, and there was a day and a night, and that was day one. He did a few more things, there was a day and night, it was day two, day three, day four, up to day seven, um, when he rested. So the concept of days, that's, that was God's idea from the beginning. The concept of a week... Of seven days, that was God's idea. Now, we've played with the, the numbers and the breakdown of it over, over the centuries, but God certainly works within times and seasons, be it days, weeks, months, or years. Some years ago, it might be a decade ago now, the Lord spoke to me, and this is what he told me. And I was reminded of it just the other day. And if you follow me on Facebook, you probably saw it. The Lord told me, he said, Tom, I want you to hold loosely to people, to possessions, and to positions, that your hands might be free to catch what's coming on the wind. That's not like God. He said, Tom, I want you to hold loosely to people and to possessions and to positions, so that your hands might be free to catch what's coming on the wind. I think in 2015, I think the wind of the Spirit's going to blow. And I think there's new stuff... <laughs> I think there's new stuff coming. I'm pretty excited about it too. <laughs> I think that the, the starting the, the new year, multiple churches agreeing to do it to get together. You know the father likes it when his kids play nice, right? To get so many, I think there's 10, 8 or 10 churches now that have agreed together to start 2015 with 40 days of prayer and fasting for Prince Edward Island. That's not something that's easily accomplished. That has to be motivated by God. I really think the Lord's in it. And i got to tell you, the last two times, I mean, God has used fasting as a, as a, as a significant uh, instrument in my life in the past. Uh, one time he told me fast and pray for seven days, that he'd speak to me at the end of it, and he did, and the result of that is that we went to West Virginia. We left home for the very first time, moved to West Virginia, and planted a church. It was amazing. And then the last time we did something like this, this 40-day thing, during it, God told me, he, during the 40 days, this a still small voice came to me in a very subtle way, and he said, I'll give you 40 visions in 40 days. And I kind of knew that that meant when the 40 days of fasting were over, that visions would begin. And on February 11, 2008, 40 days of visions began. For the next 40 days, God would give me this incredible vision. And he did that for six years, every year, beginning on February 11. Blew my mind. I had no box for that. He never did that before. So I'm kind of excited that we're doing this again. So I think God's doing new things. I'm excited that we get to start the new year with a new name, Charlottetown Vineyard, and that the new website was a gift to us. And I think it just looks, I'm kind of excited about it. I think it looks great. So, one last thing. Um, 
Anybody ever heard of the expression that the church is a family, the church is an army, the church is a school, uh, the church is a hospital? I've actually seen churches that have banners like that. So the church is an army. We do spiritual warfare. The church is a school. We train and equip people. The church is a hospital. Uh, people, people get healed, right? Um, I remember one Sunday we were having pre-service prayer and God spoke to me. He said, what about the church as an airport? Church as an airport? And I began to just kind of play out that analogy in my mind. And I'm thinking, okay, if as the pastor, let's say I'm the director of operations of an airport, if, if my airport has tarmac, has tarmac filled with grounded airplanes, and if it has terminals filled with stranded people, I'm not doing my job. Matter of fact, I might get fired if that condition stays that way for any length of time, right? I'm doing my job right if the planes come in on time, safely and on time, and if they take off safely and on time. I'm doing my job right if people aren't stranded in the terminal, but they, they make their connections to their destinations. They make the connections to their destiny. So this is what I got out of that when God said to me, church is an airport. What if that means I'm just as excited when people come in, but I'm also excited when people go out. Because I don't own them. I don't control them. My job is to help people reach their destiny. My, help, my job is to help people reach their destination. So what if in 2015 we see people come in and we see people go out? Is that a bad thing or is that a good thing? I think it could be a wonderful thing if people are following the leading of God. What do we do? They spend time with us for a short period of time. They can get what we have to offer them, and they can make the necessary connection to go on and do the very thing, to go to the place that God sent them, their destiny. So my exhortation to you is this. I think this is God's word for you. We're in a time of changing seasons. The calendar is about to change significantly. And, uh, and there's going to be significant changes for us. I think the fact that we have a new name on the first of the year, I think that's a sign for us. It's significant change for who we are as a community. We may see our church as an airport. We may see, see people come in safely and on time, but we might see people go out safely and on time. And I think we should celebrate both. If you, have, if you have been on a plane, you're really happy when that plane comes in and lands safely, and you're just as excited when it takes off safely. Nadine and I fly together. Both those times, the landing and the taking off, she squeezes my hand so tight I think my fingers are going to pop off. Right? <laughs> we should be just as excited when both things happen. So this is, this is, I think, is God's word for you today as you enter into the new year, as you begin the 40 days of prayer and fasting as the Spirit leads you. Hold loosely to people and to possessions and to positions that your hands might be free to catch what's coming on the wind because, my friends, I believe the wind's about to blow. So Lord, let your, Lord, let your wind blow. In 2015, let the wind of your spirit blow. Let it blow. Lord, we want everything that you have for us. We open our hearts, we open our hands, we open our lives, and we ask for everything that you have for us. And Lord, we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. Happy New Year. You guys enjoy the rest of the week together. And um, Saturday, we will be at Summerside Community Church with our first weekend gathering uh, for the 40 days of prayer and fasting. Hope to see you there.